Uh, we're finally here, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, why don't you go ahead and grab a Bible? Um, from the moment we began our study in 1 Corinthians, I had uh, many, many people say, man, I cannot wait till we get to chapter 11. And uh, we're finally here. Um, we have arrived at the passage that, uh, where Paul addresses head coverings. Now, um, I, I know this passage is very applicable because um, many of you uh, grew up or still have family or still yourselves are wrestling through the, uh, the topic of, of head coverings. Like, what do we make of this? Is this a, a first century thing? Are we, are we sinning if we don't wear a head? Like, there's so many layers. So I want to welcome you to the probably the most highly debated, highly confusing passages in the entire Bible. A and also the passage that has 800 million different interpretations. So um, I, I'll tell you what my goal is this morning. I want to, as I've studied this week and over the years have studied, I want to present to you my convictions as your pastor of what on earth Paul is talking about. What does he mean? What is he getting at? Does this apply? Does it not apply? Is this cultural? Is it for all time? Uh, and then, and then after we look at some cultural stuff to say, okay, well, what are some principles that we can actually pull out of this passage that do apply to both men and women in our day and age? So you have to understand that now in chapter 11, right, Paul has spent chapters 8, 9, and 10 addressing the topic of meat sacrificed to idols. And now in chapters 11 through 14, he's addressing the Corinthians church gatherings. What would happen when they would gather together for what we're kind of doing today, corporate worship, the corporate gathering of the church. And we're going to see as we go uh, onwards in the next few weeks, like it was a gong show, <laughs> a gong show of a church service. Um, a bunch of stuff has come to Paul's attention that he's going to be like, what on earth? So we'll, we'll deal with the head covering thing today. Next week, people are getting drunk at church. And you're like, can you imagine that? Like during communion, people are drinking a little bit too much of the wine. And they're drunk at the church gatherings. Um, it was just ecstatic worship. People speaking in tongues. No order to the service. Just confusion. People um, were arguing over their spiritual gifts, trying to one-up each other. What's the most important spiritual gift when we gather? Oh, you just do that? Well, I do this. I can prophesy. I can speak in tongues. I, you just preach the Bible? Oh, that's so boring. I can speak in languages that only I understand. And they were just arguing about all of these things. And so Paul, he's going to spend a giant chunk of this letter addressing all of these issues that are going on. So here's what I want to do uh, this morning. We want to work our way uh, through verses 2 through 16 in chapter 11. Um, there's going to be a bunch of explanation because if you've ever read this passage, you've probably scratched your head going like, what on earth is Paul talking about? So I want to explain a bunch of things, uh, what's going on. Uh, I want to talk about this passage culturally, right? Like we said last week, it's always good to go, what does this passage mean to the first century church in Corinth? And then, um, uh, basically three applications for us. One of them being our head coverings for today. So we'll get to that uh, at the end of uh, 
our time together. So here we go. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 2, Paul says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So pause here for a minute. I think this is actually Paul's thesis for the entire passage. And you go, okay, well, interesting that he starts by um, saying, like, I want to commend you. That you. Have you ever been where someone wants to give you some bad news? And they start by being, first of all, hey, listen, I think you're great. <laughs> However, <laughs> right? Uh, so Paul's kind of like easing into it. I want to commend you. Listen, you're doing some things well, right? You're maintaining stuff that I've delivered to you. So way to go. There's the the top, the bottom piece of bread, right, of the compliment sandwich, right? Okay, now, so he starts like this, though. He says, uh, what an interesting way to start, a passage about head coverings. He says, uh, you got to understand something. The head of a man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God. What I think Paul's doing is laying some groundwork for this whole argument that he's going to make. Now, we have to ask a couple of questions in verse 3. What does the word head mean? Um, and there's two options. Um, the Greek word is kephale, and it can be either translated as authority or as the source of something. So even think in our vernacular, um, you know, so-and-so is the head of this company. What would that mean? Well, he has authority. He's the boss. He's in charge. He makes the decisions. That would be one interpretation of the word kephale. He is, I'm the one. I'm the authority of this company. Now, if you were hiking, let's say, and you said, hey, um, we want to hike up to the head of the river, right? That, in that case, you, what are you talking about? Well, we want to go up to the, the source of the river. Where does this river start? That's the head of, of it. So that's the two options. So again, ask, well, what, what, do, what do you think Paul is using here? I want you to understand that the source of every man is Christ, or the source of a wife is her husband, or the source of Christ is God. Well, you kind of go, well, that actually doesn't make a whole lot of sense, that, that God is the source of Jesus. That was actually considered blasphemy in the first few centuries, that God created Jesus. He's the source of Jesus. Mm, that can't be it, right? Because if we say, well, Paul, when he says head means source, well, then we've completely destroyed our theology about who Jesus is. God, wasn't, God didn't create Jesus. He's not the source of Jesus, Jesus is co-eternal. So Paul must mean, when he uses the word head, uh, the translation of authority. It makes the most sense in verse 3, that Christ is the authority over man. Uh, a husband is the authority over a wife. Take a breath, we'll get to this. And uh, God is the authority over Jesus. Now, you have to go, well, really? God the Father has a certain level of authority? And if you read Scripture, he does. All throughout Scripture, we see that there are differences in role between Father, Son, and Spirit. Look, Jesus says this. John 5, 19. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does Likewise, John 14, 31, Jesus says, I do as the Father has commanded me. Now, some have said, okay, well, when Jesus was on earth, he submitted to the Father. 
Well, 1 Corinthians 15, 28, it says, When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him. Who's him? God the Father, who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. So you have to get this. Father, Son, and Spirit, the Trinity, are equal in deity, in attributes, in our worship of them. We're not saying that God the Father is more God. No, but Father, Son, Spirit have different roles within the Trinity. Did God the Father die on the cross for us? No. The Son did. God the Father initiated redemption and sent the Son, and the Son obediently went to the cross. Does the Holy Spirit have authority on his own to do whatever we want? Jesus said, actually, I'm going to send the Spirit, and he'll only teach you what I tell him to teach you. So there's, a, there's, there's differences of role in the Trinity. And yet we would say, well, that doesn't make God the Father better or more worthy of worship. No, they're completely equal. And yet they have different roles. So apply that then to the differences between men and women, which what Paul is trying to get at. Are, are men and women created equal in dignity and worth and value? Do they stand before God equal? Yes, absolutely. Yet God, in his infinite wisdom, has created structure and order and how he wants things in the universe to run. And so he has created men and women different in role. They have different strengths and different weaknesses, and yet are they equal? Yes, absolutely. So, this, so keep that in the back of your mind. This is Paul's thesis statement for the whole passage. It'll help us understand. He starts this way. Look, there's differences. There's order. There's structure that God has created. Verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head covered, or sorry, her head uncovered, dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short but since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. So why should men not cover their heads? And why should women cover their heads? We kind of go, it's interesting, right? Um, here's some cultural things going on. Uh, why should men not cover their heads? Um, in Roman culture... Part of pagan worship, Roman men, when they would go to the temples to worship, they would uh, pull up all the loose folds of their toga, and then they would put it around their head, and then they would go into the temple to worship. So Paul says to men, actually, don't do that. That's worshiping like a pagan. Don't, don't adopt the practices that they do. Because why? Because then you'll dishonor your head. Well, who's the head? Jesus. You will dishonor Jesus if you use pagan worship. Don't be like the pagans. Don't be like the Roman men who cover their heads when they go to the temple. So Paul then says, however, women, you'll dishonor your head if you uncover your head. Now, who's, who's the head that he's referring to? Their husbands. You will dishonor your husband if you pray and prophesy with your head uncovered. So what does that mean? Um, in the first century, head coverings were a universal custom. Um, and a head covering in that day and age was a physical sign that you were married. Married women wore head coverings everywhere except when they were at home. 
So listen, you have to understand, it wasn't as if it just happened in the church. Women in that day and age wore head coverings everywhere, except when they were at home, because it was a sign men would look at a woman with a head covering and go, okay, she's married. She's taken. She has a husband already. Uh, And if a married woman went out and about in public without a head covering, it says she brings shame to her head, to her husband, because what is that message sending? I'm available. I'm not married. Um, I heard one pastor say it would be, in our day and age, it would be like your wife saying, hey, I'm going to go out with some friends tonight, and before she left... um, just going to take this off, put that in there. Now I'm going to go out, take my wedding ring off. Now I'm presenting myself. I'm available. Men, that, that's what it, it would be like. I'm going to go out. I'm going to take my head covering off so that men can approach me and I'm, I'm available. So Paul is saying, women, when you do that, you're actually bringing shame to your husband. Now, why were they doing this? Clearly, there's a problem, right? Or Paul wouldn't address it. So there were, there were men in the Corinthian church who were coming to worship with their heads covered, like the pagans, and there were women in the Corinthian church who were coming to church with their heads uncovered. Now, why would they do that? I think one option is 1 Corinthians 10, 23. All things are lawful. Right? That was an issue in the church. We can do whatever we want. Jesus has set us free. So I can uncover my head now. Or it could be, there's another option, since the church met in their, in their homes, maybe women were thinking, well, I'm in my home. Why do I have to cover my head? I'm at home. And then the church would gather and there would just be confusion. Paul says, it's interesting, he says, well, women, if you want to behave like that, just shave your head. <laughs> because head shaving in the first century was actually punishment for adulterous women. So it says, listen, if you want to live like an adulterous woman, then just go all the way. Just shave your head then. Because here's what could have been happening. The women in the, in the Corinthian church could have said, well, it's for my own liberation. I've been set free by Jesus. And Paul says, it's actually for your degradation. You think that it's this great freedom that you can uncover your head in the first century. Actually, you're just bringing dishonor and shame to your husband. So if you're going to live like that, Paul says, well, just shave your head then. Just go all the way. So why does this matter? You have to imagine the chaos that would be taking place in the first century when they gathered together, men walking in, behaving like pagans. Wait, why are their heads covered? Why are they lifting their togas up and covering? That's what they do when they worship Zeus. Why are they doing that here? And then you would have women who are coming in, uncovering their heads, and people going, is she married? Are they divorced? Is she single? Can I approach her? Is she available for a relationship? It would just be chaos. So Paul says, listen, there's order, right? There's structure when you gather. So men, don't cover your head. Women, cover your head. Live within the order and structure that God's designed. Now, in verse 7, he gives um, an example from creation. So it says this, For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So what is he referencing? He's referencing uh, the creation of men and women all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. 
And he says, listen, there's, there's a difference in how God created men and, and women. Uh, God created Adam. So if you know your story, here's a really quick story of how God created everything, okay? <laughs> um, so God created the first man, Adam, and he places him in the garden. And Adam is alone. There's no other human beings. And Adam names all the animals, and he sees that, well, there's no one who's like a fit for me. So like dog being man's best friend, it's a lie. It's not true, right? But he looks and he goes, there's nothing that like is a fit for me. And God looks at Adam, and this is the first time God says that it's actually not good. It's not good that the man should be alone. So what happens? Adam uh, is put into a sleep. God takes a part of his side. It actually doesn't say rib in the Hebrew. It's like a a part, a chunk of his side out. And he makes a, a, a woman, And then God brings Eve, the first created woman, to Adam. And what does Adam say? Does he go, "Uh, try again? Or does he say, yes, now someone that I can boss around? No. He says, oh, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. It's like, finally, God. It wasn't a dog. It wasn't a cat. It wasn't an elephant. None of those things fit me. And finally, here she is. So when Paul says, a woman is the glory of man, yeah, no kidding. Of course she is. She's glorious. So ladies, like, just be like, yes. Woman is the pinnacle of creation. And she was taken out of man. Paul's whole point is, listen, women, you weren't made for men. Or sorry, uh, listen, men, rather, you weren't made from women. Women, you were made literally from man. You're his glory. You complete him. And that phrase, the the glory of man, uh, it means that a woman shows the excellence of her husband. By a wife's conduct, she can show honor to her husband. The woman completes the man. The woman completes creation, for that matter. So Paul, what he's doing is he's pointing all the way back to creation going, look, God created men and women differently, even in the very beginning. Did God put the woman to sleep and make the man out of the woman? No. It was the other way around. And, and women were made for men because we just could not do it on our own. And so notice how even Adam's response to Eve, you go, Oh, yes, Eve is the glory of Adam. Look at how he's responding to her. It's a good thing. So Paul's saying, look, even creation shows that there's differences between men and women. Yes? Verse 10. It's going to get weird. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. And so you're going to go, okay, Paul, I was following you with the creation thing. And verse 10 just seems like, Let me just throw a curveball in there. Also, this is important because of angels. And you're like, what on earth does this mean? Um, I actually think it's uh, it's quite simple when you kind of just think logically. Um, The Bible tells us in a bunch of places that um, there's a very real spiritual realm. And you actually might have interactions with angels um, that you didn't even realize they were angels. And, and we're told that actually angels, uh, they participate in worship services because they're eager to, to just understand what this gospel is. Um, Hebrews 13, 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. 
So listen, what, what the Bible's saying is in your interactions with people, they might be angels and you just don't know it. I remember um, years ago when we lived in Ottawa, my mom will share this story, but a random person knocked on the door, it was not a neighbor, and just said, um, hello, excuse me, I'm just kind of walking through uh, your neighborhood. Is there any way you could get me a glass of water? I'm just really, really thirsty. And of course, when people come and knock on your door, you're like, uh, please don't knock on my door, stranger. But my, my mom just had this sense of like, I should give this person water. So she went and got the person water and they drank the glass of water and said, oh my goodness, thank you so much. And my mom just kind of like put the glass down and turned and looked up and down the street and there was nobody there. So she said, was that an angel? Was that like a test from God for me to show hospitality? Maybe. Scripture seems to say you might show hospitality to people and they end up being angels. Um, 1 Peter 1.12, it says, It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Look, things into which angels long to look. Do you know what fascinates angels? The gospel. That they would go, man, this is so interesting that God saved human beings through his son. They long to look into those things. So are there angels gathered when we worship Jesus corporately? Probably. And so what Paul is saying is, hey, men and women, behave and use order and distinction between the roles of male and female because there's angels watching you. Now think, Satan and his demons were once angels. And why did they fall? Because they rejected God's order and his authority. Satan said, why do you get to be God? This is my paraphrase. Why do you get to be God? I should be God. I don't like the order and the structure that you've created, God. So Paul says, when you gather together... Live within the order and the structure that I've given you because there's angels watching. And that's what caused them to fall. So they should watch our church gatherings and go, okay, there's a difference between men and women. Interesting. These men and women, when they gather together to worship, they submit themselves to the authority of God. So he says, do that for the angel's sake. Now it's almost as if in verses 11 and 12, Paul's expecting people to say, which maybe some of you are thinking, so what are you saying? Men are better than women. It's like he's, it's like he's, uh, he's bracing for that. This church in Corinth going, are oh, you saying that women have to behave like this and men have to behave like this? Are you saying that there's, men are better than women? So verse 11 he says, uh, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so now uh, man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. So notice that he's saying, no, 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 no. Just because Eve was made from Adam doesn't mean that Eve is less than. Look, all men are now born from women. We kind of need them. <laughs> so he's saying, no, this is not about an, an inferiority thing. No, men are not better than women. He's like, no, look, we need each other. We're not independent from each other. Men, we need women. Women, we need men. And then lastly, in verses 13 to 15, he gives a reason from nature itself. He says, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? 
But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. What is he doing here? Um, some have said, well, see, he just means that their hair is their covering. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul is using an example from nature itself to prove his point. He's like, look, guys, even nature shows that men and women are different, doesn't it? Now, he's not prescribing hair length. Some of you men who are like, uh-oh. <laughs> Paul's not saying, high and tight, it's got to be up there. He's not saying that. And for some of you women who are like, well, I like shorter hair. Paul's not saying, it's got to be at least six inches down. He's not. He's just using a random example, saying, look, nature itself proves my point. Men, by and large, in different cultures, have shorter hair than, than women. It's not all the time, but by and large, men have shorter hair than women. And he says, by and large, women have longer hair than men. So he's like, even nature is showing differences between men and women. And I get that it differs from culture to culture to culture, but Paul's point is still valid. He says the Bible affirms it, creation affirms it, even nature itself confirms differences, now, I, I absolutely love how he ends, verse 16, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. The word contentious means someone who is fond of strife. It's that person who stands up and says, Paul, wait a second, I want to argue about this. And he says, nope. If you love arguing and you love strife, he says, we don't, we don't have a place for that in the churches. We're not fighting about this. Isn't that great? Man, I, we need to like quote this at every church meeting. <laughs> if you're going to be contentious, we don't do that here. Don't be a person who's fond of strife. I want to argue about this. Paul says, we just don't do that. So that's the passage. Clear? <laughs> So the question then is, as we think about um, application, I, I think to a first century Corinthian Christian, Paul's words ha would have been very clear. They would have said, okay, if I'm a married woman, I got to wear my head covering because it's causing disorder. If I'm a, a man, I can't keep worshiping like the pagans worship. I'm not going to cover my head. So a good question to ask then is, well, what is a cultural practice and what is a universal principle? And what I mean by that is, is 1 Corinthians 11, is the Apostle Paul prescribing head coverings for all places, all time, from then until Jesus returns? Or is he saying, this is how this principle actually act, plays itself out in Corinth, and maybe it plays itself out differently around the world and over 2,000 years of church history? So we have to answer that question. Do, is this for today, or is the principle for today, or is the practice for today, or is it both? Uh, my opinion is that I think head coverings were primarily a first century symbol of marriage. Um, it doesn't carry the same meaning and weight as a, a physical symbol in our day and age. Now, however, though, let me give some, some caveats here. Um, I think head coverings could be an adiaphora issue. Now, here's what I mean. Anytime we look at a, 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 
uh, commandment in the Bible, or like Paul seems to be saying, okay, these are the rules, you have to ask, is this a cultural thing, or is there something underneath it that we can obey? So let me give you a few other examples of of how we do this. Um, In John 13, 14, Jesus has just washed his disciples' feet. (coughs) Excuse me. And Jesus says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should do just as I have done to you. So when is the last time you wash someone's feet? Now, there are some denominations and some groups of Christians that, that literally do this. We're going to gather every time we gather. We're going to wash each other's feet. But what was going on in the first century that makes this practice such a massive statement by Jesus? Um, People walked around on dirt roads um, in sandals. And animals went to the bathroom everywhere. And so you were walking probably through feces and urine and dirt. And then you would go into someone's house for dinner. And the job of a servant in the house would be, I'm going to wash our guests' feet. It's just, it's very practical. It's disgusting if you don't. And so Jesus then, he gathers, and rather than saying, yes, you should wash my feet, Jesus gets down and he washes all of his disciples' feet, even the one who's going to betray him. But what was Jesus showing his disciples at that moment? Here's what it looks like to be a servant of all. Here's what it looks like to be my follower. You must be willing to be a servant So in our day and age, like if you came over to my house for lunch after this and at the door I stopped you and said, okay, just wait, can you take your socks and shoes off, please? And I sat down in the hallway and washed your feet. You might go, well, interesting. Or you might go, this is really weird. Because culturally, it doesn't carry the same weight and significance that it did in the first century. Everyone washed feet. But yet, can I still obey John 13, 14? And not literally wash people's feet every time they come to my house? Of course I can. Am I serving other people? Do I make myself a slave of all? Right? Let me give you another one. 2 Corinthians 13, 12. Paul commands us, greet one another with a holy kiss. Would it be weird if I stood at the door on Sundays and when everyone came in, I gave you a big smooch? Yes, this church would be empty after the first week of trying that. But it's a command. And we go, well, interesting. Some, some, listen, some Christians and some denominations, they still do this. Instead of the, you know, turn and greet one another, it's just a kiss on the cheek. Some cultures, if you've been to other parts of the world, they still do this. A kiss on the cheek, men and women, because that's culturally more acceptable. But where we live, well, it might, it might just be really weird. I would feel uncomfortable if other men said, I'm just greeting your wife with a holy kiss. I'm going to give you a holy knuckle sandwich. But do you get what I'm saying? What is the principle behind that? Oh, show hospitality to each other. Be friendly with one another. Your family, your brothers and sisters, greet each other. Show kindness. So can I obey with not literally kissing everyone? Yes, of course you can. It was a very unique cultural thing. Um, Here's another one. In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul commands us, commands the church, when you take up your collection, give money, and then send it to the church in Jerusalem. Have you done that lately? No. It's a commandment. But you go, what's the principle? Paul was saying to the church in Corinth, send money 
to Jerusalem. But what do we do? We can still obey that. We send money to Babaram. We give money to other churches around the world. We give money here. So, that, so do you see what I'm saying? There is a difference between what is the letter of the law versus what is the spirit of the law. Um, Paul's already shown us that, right? Listen, there is a massive difference between what is the letter of the law and what is the spirit of the law. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul quotes the Old Testament law. Verse 9, he says, or yeah, verse 9, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. The letter of the law, when your ox is working, let him eat. But Paul says, actually, that's about the apostles. And you go, wait, what? He says, actually, the spirit of the law is that you should take care of the people that work for you. And you go, but it's not even about people. It's about oxen, Paul. Yes, the letter of the law is feed your oxen, but the spirit of the law is take care of people who, who labor for you. Here's an example between the letter and the spirit of the law. Let's say my kid uh, came home from school and I said, uh, before you watch, you're not, you're not allowed to watch TV until you clean your room. Okay, that's the law. That's the commandment. You come home from school, you can't watch TV until you clean your room. And then two minutes later, I see them on the iPad watching things, and I go, what are you doing? I'm not watching TV, I'm watching the iPad. Right? So you go, technically, they're following the letter of the law. They're, they're technically not watching the TV. So then I could say, well, okay, maybe that's on me. No, no screens or devices, okay, until you clean your room and then I come back down and they're playing on the swings outside. You didn't say I couldn't play outside. And you're like, okay, do you, do you see the difference? What is the spirit of the commandment that I clean your room? And, and we could say, well, I followed the letter of the law and yet your heart could be so far. Was this not the Pharisees? We follow the letter of the law and... Jesus says, you guys are whitewashed tombs. You look clean on the outside, but your hearts are full of evil. So here's what I, I think. And again, you can take it with a grain of salt because there's many, many, many very smart scholars who would disagree with me, and that's fine. I think the idea of wearing a head covering was primarily a first century thing uh, culturally and even today there's different parts around the world that it still carries weight and significance that they go okay that head covering means something however I think could a a woman obey the principles that Paul is laying out hey men be men women be women know, know the different roles that God has called you. Women, give honor and respect to your husband. Could they still do that without following a first century practice? Yeah, absolutely. And on the flip side, could a woman come to church, put on a head covering, and still be disrespectful and dishonorable to her husband? Yes. They could follow the letter of the law and miss the spirit of the law behind it. So then, again, I'm going to leave that with you to decide and weigh and go, okay, let's, let's wrestle with that. Listen, if someone wears a head covering, they're, they're not sinning by doing so. If you read 1 Corinthians 11 and your conviction is, no, I need to wear a head covering to church, God bless you. You are free to do so. However, if you read 1 Corinthians 11 and you go, you know what, I can honor the principles that God's laying out here and actually not wear a physical covering, I don't believe you're sinning. 
I think have conviction in your heart, the best way forward for you to obey Jesus, and then be at peace. So then, um, what are some principles that are clear in this passage? Um, Number one is um, God's ordering and structure is for our flourishing as human beings. Um, Submission is not a bad thing. But we live in a world that is anti-authority for everything. We are anti-submission to everyone. And you have to hear this. Submission to someone does not equal inferiority to them. That's what our world says. If you have to submit to someone, that means that you're inferior. You're less than they are. And that is not true biblically. And we all have to submit to something. Correct? Like men, we submit to Jesus we, the, uh, Paul writes about, hey, if you're going to be a part of a church, church, submit to your elders. Wives are told to submit to their husbands. We're all told to submit to government. All things are prescribed by God, and they're done for our own flourishing. But listen, like in every area of life, I see this in our world. We are just anti-authority everything. It's like the church elders can't tell me what to do. Then they're being judgmental. Or it's like, the government can't tell me what to do. I hate the government. Which I'm like, eh, I kind of get that one. Uh, just kidding. But we, we, we just kick against it. You can't tell me what to do. Um, women are like, I'm not going to. 1 Corinthians 11, my husband's the authority over me. Ephesians 5, 1 Peter, my husband has authority. No, that's not fair. Children are like, what? I have to obey my parents and submit to them? No, that's not fair. But can I just say, Perhaps, like as lovingly as I can say, perhaps the creator and sustainer of the universe knows better than you. It, listen, it, this is for our flourishing as humanity. Paul is saying to this church, your church services are a gong show because you are rejecting God's order and structure. Why do you think there's so many issues going on, Corinthian church? Because you're saying, I don't, I, don't have to, I don't have to behave how God tells me to behave. I can do whatever I want. God's ordering is for our flourishing. I mean, as I thought this week, you look around the world, and you think maybe, just maybe, not all, but much of the chaos and mayhem and disorder that is going on in our world is because we have said, God, I don't want to live how you've called me to live. I reject your authority structure, God. And like really, we could ask, well, how is that working out for us as a society? Terribly. Which leads me to my next point. I think a principle that's here is that, and I can't believe we have to say this, men should be men and women should be women. Very applicable in our day and age where our society says there is no men or women. It's whatever. And the biblical standard that God has is he says, I've created men and women equal in dignity and worth and value. They stand before me on level ground, men and women. And yet God has said, I've created men and women for different roles. But like, listen, again, not just our culture, our church world kicks against that. We go, no, masculinity is toxic. 
men shouldn't behave like men. Third-wave feminism has destroyed what it means to be a woman in the name of, well, we're liberating you women, and they're not. It's a lie. So I need to speak to men and women as we close. Men, I need to challenge you. Um, Be men. Don't punt on your God-given role to lead and serve and die for your wife and children. Don't believe the lie that, oh, well, if you display masculinity, well, it's toxic and it's bad for your wife and kids. That's a load of crock. Be men. Obviously, under the authority of Jesus, listen, you will stand before Christ and you will answer for how you treated your wife and kids. So lead well, men. And on the flip side, women, be women. It's actually heartbreaking watching our world lie to you women. And basically, they've erased what it means to be a woman. And oh, that you would be godly women under the authority of Jesus, that you would show honor and respect, that you would prove the excellence of your husband, that you would lovingly come alongside him. Do you want to know what I think would be the most radical thing to do in our day and age? It wouldn't be to get angry and comment on everything online and to just yell and protest and be so mad about everything. Do you want to know what the most radical thing you could do as followers of Jesus? Men that you would lead and serve well and that women you would honor your husbands. Our culture would look at that and go, well, that's crazy. Why is your life flourishing right now when mine is falling apart? Because we would go, God, you have created order and structure and design, and you are smarter than us, and we're going to live in that. So I think this passage is actually much deeper than a piece of fabric on your head or not. I think this passage goes down to the very core of what it means to be a man and a woman and how we honor God in what he's called us to. So, Father, I just thank you for your word. Uh, Again, I mean, this passage is just so rich. And if I'm honest, it can be so confusing. But God, I I just pray that you would bring clarity to our hearts. God, I think that the underlying principles in this passage are, are actually quite clear amidst the confusion maybe of some of the practices and wording that Paul uses, but I, I think you are trying to, to show us that you have designed men and women differently, equal in dignity and worth, but different. You've designed us with different purposes. And in your sovereignty and wisdom, you've designed men and women differently so that our species, our humanity would flourish. So God, forgive us. Forgive us men here who have punted on our responsibilities, who have believed the lie, well, it's evil to be a man, and it's not good to lead and serve and just kind of fade into the background and don't stand up for anything. God, forgive us. I pray that the men of this church would be men 
that they would lead and serve, that they would die for their families, that they would lead and serve and die for the church. That no one could say, well, they're just abusing their authority because we know as men, we're going to stand before you, Jesus, and answer for everything that we've done. So I pray that you would help us to lead well. God, I pray for the women of this church, that they would be women, that they would not believe the lies that our culture spews at them nonstop, that they would go, actually, you know what? It is a good and glorious thing to show honor and respect to my husband, to to serve alongside him, to be the helper that he needs. Um, God, we need your help in this. Humanly speaking, um, and this is where the curse in Genesis 3 comes in, humanly speaking, sin wrecked our relationships and men want to domineer and women don't want to serve and honor their husbands because sin just makes us so selfish. I pray that we would just lay aside our selfishness and that we would serve one another. That we would celebrate the order that you have designed us for So just do that work in our hearts, Jesus. And I just pray all of this in your mighty name. Amen.